This morning I'm going to read from John chapter 4, verses 10 through 26. We've been in this series uh, that's called, Oh, How I Love Jesus. And so the next part of this series is talking about how uh, the Lord satisfies our greatest thirst. This is John chapter 4, starting with verse 10. Jesus had entered a conversation with an unnamed woman in the village of Sychar, which is part of Samaria. And they were sitting at Jacob's well that was very well known in that area. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Let's pray for a moment. Father God, thank you so much for sending Jesus into the world and making so many things clear. Thank you for this very clear declaration from Jesus that he is the Messiah, the chosen one, the Christ that so many were awaiting for so long. And we look back on those moments and on those declarations, and we thank you that we live in a day of such clarity, even as people tend to confuse Jesus with all of the gods of other faiths, all the gods that have been created. We thank you that when we see Jesus, we see you, the Father, the Creator, the one who loves us more than anyone else. And so we come here to worship Him and to learn more about Him and to learn about how we communicate about Jesus to a world that is often confused around us. Thank you that you hear our prayers and that you invite us as your children to bring our, our needs and our requests and our hopes to you. This morning, we ask that you will continue to advance the ministry of our church together as we try to live out our faith before others and as we try to help others catch the spirit and understanding of 
Jesus and what life is like when we are uh, quenching our thirst with this living water rather than trying to have all the physical things of this world that meet our deepest needs. Lord, we also bring to you requests from those in our church family who are struggling mightily. Uh, We pray for Marge Cameron that you will continue to walk with her through this ordeal. We pray that you will will wake her up and that you will uh, bring her back without complications from the surgeries that she's had and the coma that she's in. We pray for Frank Stack, who's in the hospital this weekend with, at this point, some undiagnosed and unknown uh, ailments, and we ask that uh, you would give him relief. And we pray for Nancy Merrifield as she continues to fight this very aggressive cancer. We thank you for the joy that she has gone through this with so far, and we ask that you'll bring her out on the other side soon. Lord, you know all the struggles that we have. You know those who are who are struggling in a variety of ways. They're out of work. Their marriage has been tested. They're struggling with issues that uh, are involved when their kids get into trouble or seem to wander off the path. We pray for wisdom. We pray for hope. We pray for healing. We pray for an inner change that allows us to, to live as the people you created us to be. And now give us ears to hear from Jesus as we look into this gospel passage. In his name we pray. Amen. One of the things that I have come to love about living in New England and being from New England is that there's so much history all around us. Think of it. Last year, 2020, marked 400 years from the time when the Mayflower deposited that first group of permanent English settlers to to start an ongoing community that has been lasting in Plymouth for 400 years. Next year, my hometown of Weymouth will celebrate the second settlement, which started in 1622 when Miles Standish took a group of people and they had a military outpost in North Weymouth. Now, that didn't prove to be a permanent settlement so that Weymouth actually is founded in 1635, but they're celebrating the earlier start in 1622 next year. A few years ago, I had an opportunity to officiate at a wedding that took place in the oldest home in Hull. This home that's still standing was built in 1633. Can you imagine that? I remember standing in the oldest part of that house looking at these old beams and this wide open fireplace that would have been the, what they called the keeping room back then. It's where all the cooking would have been done and the warmth and the fire would have been the place where they would have gathered in their living room, so to speak. And it was just fascinating to think back about how long that house has been standing. Perhaps the town where you live also has old stories and a history that calls out to us with reminders of the past. One of the sore points of our time is that while a person like me may revel in parts of our cultural history, we also share this area with the Wampanoags and people from other cultures who only see pain and loss when they look at our history and our culture. Now, I choose to begin with this story and the complexity of it because the gospel account that we're going to dive into today takes place in a setting with a mixed and troublesome past. And the actions, words, and grace that Jesus offers stand in, con- in opposition to the harmful things that were done in the past. Our current theme is, Oh, How I Love Jesus, and for the past few weeks we've been looking at snapshots of people who were moved to express great love and appreciation toward Jesus. The subtitle for this series is, What Makes Jesus So Attractive? 
And so each week we've been asking a number of questions. What is so attractive that people are drawn to Jesus from generation to generation now for 2,000 years? What causes people to have such deep devotion toward Jesus? And today we're asking a third question. What makes Jesus so attractive in a climate of cultural damage? This morning our, our, our topic is satisfying your greatest thirst. So let me just say welcome to North River Church this morning. I'm glad that you're here. Uh, good morning. I'm, I'm glad that you're awake and you're here at 9 o'clock. And for those of you who are watching online as well, welcome. North River is a growing gathering of people from all around Boston's South Shore and now from a much wider region as people are connecting with us in a variety of different locations and states through our online platforms. My hope is that you will dive in today as we take a closer look at a passage that is familiar to many longtime Christians and readers of the Bible, and yet there's so much more that we keep discovering more about what Jesus was doing behind his words. And my hope is that you will be moved to take a next step with Jesus. Part of the question that I'm thinking through this morning is, how would Jesus approach people today who've been harmed by pain and mistrust? And folks, you and I have an awful lot of friends who've been harmed by pain and mistrust. So I'd like you to look at six simple bridge-building approaches that Jesus took in the midst of this conversation with a woman that we familiarly call the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Here's the first bridge-building step by Jesus. Study the culture. Verse 4 says, Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Joseph's, uh, Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. Now, verse 4 in John chapter 4 is a pivotal statement in regard to understanding the mission of Jesus. The word rendered must meant it is necessary. Okay, so it, Jesus is saying it was necessary for him to go to Samaria. Necessary for who and necessary for what reason? You may know that Jewish people of that era strictly avoided going through the region of Samaria. In fact, they would often go out of their way to avoid setting foot in Samaria. So that makes it rather interesting that John writes that Jesus had to go through Samaria. John seems to be saying that it was necessary for Jesus in a missional sense. There was something about the mission that God had given him that was bringing him to that region. Then there are four specific details that John drops here in these opening verses as Jesus moves into Samaria. Here are the four details. The village of Sychar, and then the names Jacob, Joseph, and the location of Jacob's well. Let's start with the village of Sychar. This is the only time this village is mentioned in the entire Bible. There's no other Old Testament reference or New Testament reference. However, Sychar is located on the outskirts of a larger city known as Shechem. One of the slides that will come up behind me shows the, the area and how this is all kind of packaged in. There's a mountain, Mount Gerizim, that's up behind the, uh, the, the city of Shechem, and Sychar is a smaller village on the outskirts of Shechem. Just about every time that Shechem is mentioned in the Bible, bad things happen there. Then John mentions two specific names, Jacob and Joseph. 
Now, the combination of the area of Shechem with the name Jacob are meant to bring to our memory some things that happened in the past. And there's a specific reference where Shechem and Jacob are mentioned in Genesis 35, which is the chapter that details the rape of Jacob's daughter, Dinah. Dinah was raped by a young man named Shechem. He was the son of Hamor, who was the ruler of that region. And after she was raped, Jacob did what was customary for that time. He reached a deal with Hamor to marry off Dinah to Shechem. So think about that. Here was the culture of the past. This young woman was raped, and then she was married off to her rapist. I see people rightfully shaking their heads saying, this is crazy. Now, Jacob was silent, and we don't see some great protest, uh, and we wonder, you know, why is Jacob so silent? Why, do, why doesn't he defend his daughter in this moment? And that we're never really given an answer to that. However, while he didn't say much, part of the deal in this arranged marriage was that Shechem, his father Hamor, and all the men of the city of Shechem would have to be circumcised. And so, after they were circumcised, the sons of Jacob got together and they struck their revenge on all of these men and they murdered all of the men in that village. So much so that Jacob says to his sons, why did you do this? Don't you realize that, that our name is going to be a stench with all of the other peoples of this region? And people uh, had a great fear of Jacob and his sons during that time. So Shechem becomes a place of rape and revenge, and even revengeful murder. But the name of Joseph is also mentioned there. Shechem was also where Jacob's family was living, living when Joseph was sold as a slave by his brothers and was carried off to the land of Egypt. Do you remember when I said that bad things happened at Shechem? So now we see this as a scene of rape, revengeful murder, and even human trafficking. Just imagine how much bitterness had developed over the years and centuries between Jews and people of this region since then. We're starting to understand why Jews never entered into the region of Samaria. And then there's one fourth reference to Jacob's well. Jacob's well is still there. So a couple of the pictures that have been cycling before me, uh, behind me, one of them is a, an old, old picture of Jacob's well around 1900. And then there was another one of Jacob's well that is inside the church of Jacob's well where there was a, an orthodox movement that decided they needed to build a church around that well in order to celebrate and preserve the past. So if you were to go to Israel and when I get to go, hopefully sometime, uh, you actually can go to Jacob's well and you can enter that church and that same well that's now inside a church is the same well that's talked about here where Jesus was sitting there having this conversation with that woman on that day. It's a real story about a real place, and one of the reasons that I think the gospel mentions this specific well and this specific village and city is that it lets us know that all this happened in a time and place that can be verified. If Jesus was like most people, he would have left this complex mess alone and walked away. But the gospel text says that he had to go through Samaria. Jesus walked into the most difficult cultural messes in order to bring God's redemption. Gospel grace was badly needed in this city of rape, revenge, murder, and human trafficking. Study the culture. Sometimes the culture is harmful 
and hurtful, but that doesn't mean that the gospel won't have its impact there. Here's the second bridge-building step by Jesus. Move past cultural barriers. Look what happens in verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. On top of the history of Shechem, there was a deep divide between Jews and the Samaritans, the people who were living there then in that time frame. So what had happened in the meantime was that after the exile, there were a number of Jewish people who were left in that, in that area after uh, the fall of Samaria and the fall of Jerusalem. And the leaders from the conquering nations had brought in people from other nations and other cultures to repopulate that part of the land of Israel. The result is they had a mishmash of faith, a little bit of Jewish understanding, a little bit of the idolatry that they brought from the other nations around them. And the faith of the Samaritans was a very confusing mashup of all of these things, kind of a, you know, a multi-world faith. So part of the reason for this deep division between Jews and Samaritans was that Samaritans came from an intermarriage between Jews and the pagans of the exile area. And a second reason was that Samaritans also adopted some of the religious practices of those pagan cultures. Basically, Jesus broke with Jewish tradition to even begin a conversation with this woman at the well. Jewish religious leaders avoided all contact with Samaritans, and if at all possible, they avoided even traveling into their towns. But Jesus not only noticed her, he initiated a conversation with her, and he listens to her, which is part of his process of undoing all the harm of the expectations based on the past. So the first step that Jesus would bring us through is to study the culture. The second is to move past cultural barriers. To Jesus, it didn't matter that nobody else wanted to talk to Samaritans. He knew that God loved them and that God's gospel applies to them, and so he went there. Third, focus on what people truly thirst for. In verse 14, it says, Jesus says, Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Many people are used to promises that are not kept. So it was with this woman. She'd been passed around from man to man. When Jesus asked her to get her husband, she told him that she had no husband. Now, Jesus wasn't doing this to shame her. But he added that he knew who she was from afar and he could tell some things about her life. He even added that the guy she was living with at this point wasn't her husband. And then he offers this living water to her because he knew that she needed something that lasts. And she'd been trying to find her security in all kinds of promises that could never last. He was offering her the kind of water that quenches deep spiritual thirst, the kind of water that's like having a spring of water that develops inside your soul and that keeps replenishing over and over and over. Even though she didn't fully understand what he was talking about instantly, she knew that she wanted what he was offering. Jesus was using Jacob's well to illustrate something greater, that God can give us this living water that spiritually refreshes from the inside of your soul. And she knew enough to know that she wanted it. 
Most people don't fully understand all that is promised when they first choose to trust Christ. They understand bits and pieces, but there's usually enough to show them that this is something worth grabbing hold of. And they do understand from his life, death, and resurrection that the kind of new life that he promises really is eternal. So, focus on what people truly thirst for rather than all the short-term fixes that we seem to be drawn toward in our society. The fourth bridge-building step that Jesus brings in is to gently expose false hopes. Now, why did he do that? He needed to do that in order to strip her away from false beliefs so that she could grab onto what is true. This part of the conversation brings this out, starting in verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back to draw water. He told her, Go and call your husband and come back. Uh, I have no husband, he said to her. And, and he replies, you are right when you say this. The fact is you now have five husbands and the man that you have is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. So what were her false hopes? Her false hope was trying to cure a spiritual problem by belonging to different men. She'd gone through five others. And we don't know the stories behind that statement, but she was now living with a sixth man. We don't know some things. Had, had one or more of them simply left? Had one or more of them died? Had she fled an abusive marriage? Was she simply unfaithful? Or had she been passed around by man after man who ultimately rejected her? Most students of this passage conclude that this is why she was there at the well in the middle of the day rather than early in the morning when most of the other women from the village would come to the well and draw water. She was avoiding all of the complicated, awkward conversations that would come. And she had become alienated. Jesus was not trying to ridicule her with guilt or shame through his question. He wanted her to know that finding a new man would never cure the ache in the deepest part of her soul. She simply didn't know what she was really thirsting for until he pointed out her false hopes. In our day, many sex-crazed people are spiritually misguided. Sex cannot supply their deepest need. Simply being with a man would not supply this woman's deepest need. She needed a solution to her feeling of alienation ultimately from God. A number of years ago, Stephen King wrote a book that was called The, the Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon. If you're a Red Sox fan from old time, you might re remember the name Tom Gordon. He was a relief pitcher for the Red Sox, who actually was quite good for a while. The book is about a girl named Trish McFarland who stopped alongside the trail as her family was hiking through the Appalachian Trail. She needed to go to the bathroom in the woods, and so she lagged behind the rest of her family to discreetly step off the trail and somewhere hide behind a tree. But when she was finished and she stepped back onto the trail, she realized that she'd walked too deeply into the woods and she was on a different trail and she was lost. King wrote that when she realized that she was really lost, she sat down and tried to pray for rescue. But the problem is she didn't come from a family that, that prayed often and, and her father didn't believe in God at all and she only talked with her mother about spiritual things once in a while. And here she was needing to pray and didn't know how. Her dad had filled her head with this idea that there is no God, there's only the sub-audible. And so she was listening for some sounds out there. Lost, alone, 
afraid in the woods, she began to remember her favorite baseball player, Tom Flash Gordon, a Red Sox picture from the late 1990s, and he was a Red Sox closer. And so when he would throw a pitch that would get that final out and he'd win the game, he would point his finger toward heaven, giving credit to God for the victory, and he let people know that he was a Christian. And she thought, here's the only person I know who has a faith in a real, knowable, personal God who answers prayers. And so she began to pray to the God of Tom Gordon, the spiritual God, the personal God, and asking God to lead her out of the woods and to rescue her. Folks, this is, this is exactly the way many people in our culture live. They're very, very confused until there's a time of need, a time of great pain or searching where they need a rescue. And so who is it they're, that they're watching that they can pick up clues from as to how to discover the living God who actually cares about people and who knows our names and has a future for us? Here's the main idea that I'm trying to try get across this morning. God lifts spiritual confusion when we listen and gently respond as Jesus did. Then there's another uh, fifth um, step that Jesus took. Expect common objections. We should become familiar with the common objections that people often raise when they hear parts of the gospel. So we need to decide beforehand that you and I won't be surprised or offended when there's some initial pushback from other people. Here it comes in this conversation. Verse 19, Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Now, what was she doing here? Jesus had started to press the sore points in her life that she had false hopes, that she was trying to build her hopes that somebody else, some connection with a, a human being will somehow complete her life. And he was letting her know that, and it got kind of personal. So she steers the conversation away to an ancient controversy between Jews and Samaritans about Mount Gerizim that was in the background of that picture you saw a moment ago. She knew that Jews considered the temple in Jerusalem to be the holiest place, while Samaritans revered Mount Gerizim that had been an early worship site, and they saw that as their holiest spot. As if to say, if you're on the mountain, that's when your, your confusion gets lifted and your prayers get answered. And why did she change the subject so abruptly? She was turning the conversation away from the condition of her own soul. This was an appeal to sincerity. She brought up the sincerity of her Samaritan forefathers. And Jesus' answer was that the day was coming when people must worship in the Spirit and in truth. In other words, that God's Spirit will lead us into all truth. And then she tried to apply the your beliefs are exclusive label. This is what she meant when she said, but you Jews claim this or that. One of the common complaints about Christian faith can be summed up in two words, that we're intolerant and we're exclusive. Lee Strobel points out in his book, The Case for Christ, that every major religion makes truth claims just as Christianity does. Buddhism, for instance, was founded when Buddha rejected fundamental assertions of Hinduism. Hindus are absolutely uncompromising on several issues, especially karma and reincarnation. Atheists claim that there is no God. That in itself is a truth claim. By definition, they are intolerant of the viewpoint of anyone who does believe in God. In other words, people who accuse Christians of arrogance, 
because they make exclusive truth claims are ignoring the fact that every major religion does exactly the same thing. The focus ought to be on which truth claims best stand up under the scrutiny of tough questions or testing. God works in the minds of spiritually confused people when we gently respond in the ways that Jesus responded. And then there's one more point to the uniqueness of Jesus. In verse 25, the woman says, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Jesus made three primary claims about his identity. The first is what I would call the directional claim. In John 14, 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He made at least five other I am claims in the gospel of John alone. The second claim about his identity is the exclusive claim. In that same verse, John 14, 6, he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. It is inclusive in that everyone is offered the same opportunity to respond to him. Everybody is invited. It is exclusive in two ways. No one else all through history shares the role that Jesus Christ has in regard and relationship to his Father. And it was also exclusive in that Jesus is the only way to the Father that God has appointed. All others are man-made solutions. And then, in addition to the directional claim and the exclusive claim, there's the revelational claim that Jesus makes. You have seen the Father if you have seen me, he says. Jesus claimed to have an authority from God that is unlike any other, and that authority was backed up by the miraculous events of his life, and most of all, by the resurrection. Jesus was claiming to share the essence of God the Creator, his claim of divinity. The point is that the claims of Jesus need to be fully considered. He cannot easily be lumped in with all of the other religious leaders if one takes him seriously and looks at his words and his actions. And if what Jesus said is true, then he offers a pathway to God that is simply unlike any other, which is what allowed him to say to this woman that day, I will give you living water. And folks, that's what Jesus offers to us today. Wherever you're watching from, Jesus offers that he will give us the same living water that he talked about that day at Jacob's well. And if you invite him into your life and you receive him as your Savior and you begin to apply his words of wisdom to your life, you will find that the Spirit of God becomes active in you. And little by little, he changes you and hope wells up from within you because of the presence of Christ in your life. God works in the minds of spiritually confused people when we gently listen and respond in ways that Jesus responded. All right, real quickly, the outcome. Her newfound faith in Jesus was contagious. Jesus stays two more days. She invites all of her neighbors, and they too put their faith in Jesus. And the Bible's last scene about Sychar, the only scene that happens here in John 4, becomes a scene that forevermore is dominated not by rape or revenge or human tra trafficking, but by redemption. As that whole village of Sychar becomes filled with people who have this newfound faith in Jesus Christ because of one conversation with a very troubled woman at the well that day when Jesus brought clarity to her about how God meets our deepest thirst in life in the presence of Christ.
if you're hungering and thirsting for more of God or peace of mind and peace of soul. I hope that you would pray this prayer with me. It's very short, but I wrote it out with the thought of just trying to be simple. So if you're willing to, pray this out loud with me, or even if you're at home, pray this in your room. Lord, help me find the path marked out by Jesus. I will trust in Jesus. Give me the living water that can fill my soul. In his name, amen. And I believe that if you cry out to God in this way, he will begin to come into your life through the presence of the Holy Spirit who communicates Jesus to us. And your life will be filled with the joy and satisfaction of God. Thank you, Lord, for meeting us here in this place today and allowing us to celebrate. Thank you for hearing our cries and our prayers. We lift all of our worship to you because of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for being here and talking with me about how God meets our spiritual hunger and thirst.